Amen. What a beautiful song. What a beautiful affirmation of faith. And not only faith in our God, but faith in His Word. Today we are going to open up God's Word. And we are going to spend our time today in Joshua 9 and a little bit of Joshua 10. I I love this thing. It's awesome. There's no mistaking what this book is when you pick it up. It's It's just beautiful. All right, let us go to Joshua chapter 9. Before we read the word of the Lord, let's pray to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it in our own language so that we can understand it. Lord, I pray that you would bless the reading and the teaching of your word. I pray that you would bless me as I bring the gospel to your people this morning. Lord, let your words speak through me. And I pray that the truth would never depart from this pulpit. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you loved us and that you've given us your word. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Chapter 9. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon... The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning, and went and made ready provisions, and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet, and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and all the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. How then can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion the king of Heshbon, and to Og the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst, and the garments and sandals of ours are worn out from a very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chippereth, Beareth, Kirath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And now we may not touch them. 
This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king, and he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hohem, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lakeshish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. And then the, king of, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lakeshish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies, and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Mekedah. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones, Then the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At the time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day, when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ahijan. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since. When the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. This is the word of the Lord. My first part-time job ever was in high school. I, was worked, I worked for Walgreens. And while making money in high school was awesome, working for that money in high school was not. 
Now, Walgreens today, their uniforms kind of change, but when I worked there, you had to wear a shirt and a tie and slacks and dress shoes, which are not comfortable to work in for eight hours. When I was getting paid and I was discussing with my parents how this would work, they opened a bank account for me, and they said that I would be able to take half of my paycheck for spending, and the other half would be for saving, because working is not just about spending, it's about savings. I didn't really have a choice in this, so I agreed. We made a deal. I kept half my paycheck for spending, and I kept half my paycheck as savings. Now, I may not be the wisest or the smartest person in the world, but I am fairly quick-witted, and I can uh, think on my feet quickly. So during this conversation, I asked politely, may I keep all of the money from my first paycheck? It's my first paycheck. There's never going to be a first paycheck again. It's a big deal. My parents looked at each other. Okay, that, that's fine. Each paycheck was going to be about $150. I don't quite remember. I think it was about that much. But what my parents didn't know is that my first paycheck was going to be a lot more than that because I started just after a pay period had begun. So I was not going to get paid for a long time, but instead my paycheck would be double. I'd used logic and quick thinking to get what I wanted, which was a new Xbox. My parents realized something was wrong when they saw my bank account explode with all this money. And I explained to them that because of my start date, there was kind of a little snafu there, and so I had more money than I'd planned. They weren't thrilled, and uh, let's just say that you may think you get away with deceiving your parents, but in reality, your parents always know, and they're always going to find out because they're much, much smarter than you are. And when we talk about deceiving... We look in our biblical text today. The Gibeonites deceived Joshua and the Israelites. And we're going to look at this interesting interaction. All of Canaan hears about what has happened to Jericho and to Ai. Completely destroyed, obliterated. So all of the Amorites and Canaan in this area decide to band together. And they're going to fight Joshua and Israel together. But now the Gibeonites they resolved to do something different. They took bags that were worn out, wineskins that had burst, and food that was old and dry, uh, crumbly, as the Bible uses. They prepare to wake their way to Joshua at Gilgal. And then they get there, and they, they ask Joshua for something. So they show up, and they say, We've come from a distant country. Make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan. You can see there, there wasn't a lack of skepticism on the Israelites' parts. They were skeptical. They were not sure who these people were. Now, the Israelites knew what the commands of the Lord's were. And the commands of the Lord were to wipe out all of the Canaanites. All the people living in the promised land need to be wiped out. So, Israel asked the right questions, but not the right person. Verse 14 and 15. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. 
And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Yes, the Israelites were skeptical and they asked the right questions, but they didn't ask the one who knows all. It's a little disheartening at this point. If we've been spending all this time in Joshua, we see the rise and the fall of the Israelites. They do something great because of the Lord, and then they do something not so great because they forget to talk to God. We looked on as Moses read the law in our very first, our first sermon in, in August. We looked as Moses read the law to all the Israelites in its entirety. So they would know it as they went forward into the promised land. And then we watched as an army move forward by faith, shameless series plug, attack Jericho in one of the craziest battle strategies I've ever read about. And then we read as they they, they failed to speak to the Lord before the battle of Ai. And the battle of Ai goes poorly. They lost so many men, 36. And then... They renew the covenant before the Lord, and they destroy I. And just after the battle, they're renewing the covenant. Everyone is excited. They're going to follow the Lord. And then these guys show up. The Gibeonites offer what seems like a a genuine report. They acknowledge who God is and ascribe him honor. And against their better judgment, the Israelites listen to them. Now, you'll notice in their report, the Gibeonites don't say anything about what happened to Jericho or to Ai, because that news wouldn't have reached outside Canaan quick enough. They were very shrewd in how they addressed Israel. And like I said, against their better judgment, Joshua and Israel make a covenant with them. And after three days of fellowship, they realize that something's not right. They find out these people live among them. Now, Joshua doesn't need to ask God for every single thing he should do. He doesn't need to ask God, well, should I have quail today or should I have fish? God, do I need to trim my beard today? Right? He doesn't need to ask those things. But he does need to ask about making important deals and covenants with people they don't know. Now, we see this brash independence just two chapters earlier, like I said at the first battle of Ai. Joshua did things that a good general would do, but he doesn't do what a follower of the Lord would do. And sadly, the mistake is repeated here. It's kind of like a child as they get older. They want to become more independent. They want to start doing things on their own. And and they want to do things independently from their parents. But the problem ensues when the child realizes they're in way over their head. And just because you're getting older doesn't mean you're ready to take on the world. And now I'm I'm strictly talking about other kids and teens here. I'm not talking about myself in any way. But Joshua and the Israelites, they want to go on their own. They want to do their own thing. They want to be independent. But trouble lines the path when they don't seek wisdom from the creator of the path. And instead of Joshua continuing to press these visitors and find out more about them, he accepts them. Now, what's being done here, it's, kind of a, it's called a suzerian vassal covenant. That's your, your big, big phrase, big word for the day. Suzerian vassal covenant. A suzerian is a king or a leader who is great, who has a large army, a huge city. And a vassal is someone who serves that king. And a covenant, you know what a covenant is. A suzerian vassal covenant. This is what they would do back in Bible times. This is the kind of covenant that was cut. The, the greater king, 
the Caesarean, would demand from the vassal tribute, money, food, gold, silver, and they would require complete, uh, com- uh, complete subject, subjugation of them. And then the vassal would get to keep their lives, and they would get to keep their city. So the vassal would swear fealty to the Caesarean. Now, the people of Gibeon are willing to swear fealty to Israel. They are willing to become vassals to Israel. The problem is there's an issue here with this Caesarean vassal covenant that's being made. Israel is already in a Caesarean vassal covenant. They are the vassals of God. And God is the Caesarean. And a vassal cannot make a covenant with another country, another people group, without first talking to their Caesarean. Israel does what they shouldn't do. And they find out quickly this was a mistake. Verses 17 through 19. And the people set out and reached their cities on the third day. Three days isn't very far. Their cities were Gibeon, Chepareth, Beareth, and kirath Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them. Because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against their leaders. Three days is not a far journey. It's definitely not very far. The army makes their way. The army of Israel marches out to the cities of Gibeon to see what now they've acquired. And when they get there, they don't attack because they made a covenant. Now here's where we get a glimpse into the heart of humans. Back in the Exodus, we see the Israelites consistently complaining and grumbling against Moses. Thankfully here, we're not at grumbling yet. Grumbling and murmuring are a little different. But you can see there are some cracks that are starting to form. The people of Israel see what their leaders have done, and they're not happy about it. Now Joshua, in an attempt to remedy the situation, and the leaders of Israel as well, they remind the people... There's nothing we can do. We made a covenant before the Lord. And rather than risking the wrath of God because we're breaking this covenant, we have to uphold it. Now the Gibeons, the Gibeonites, that didn't mean much to them of holding their word because they're clearly already lying. But they hoped that Israel would keep their word. And Israel did. Now, again, Joshua, in an attempt to remedy the situation, tells Israel, these people of Gibeon are going to be our servants. They're going to cut wood for us. They're going to be drawers of water for Israel. But not just for Israel, right? Israel, yes. But we read this exchange between Joshua and the Gibeonite leaders in verses 22 and 23. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed. And some of you shall never be anything but servants and cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. It's interesting, the Bible uses the word cursed there. I could think of many worse things. Before even hearing the reason why they did it, Joshua pronounces judgment. And rightly so, they are now vassals to Joshua. Joshua has the right to pronounce judgment upon them. And we see here the response of the leaders of Gibeon, just another verse later. But we have to read it very carefully, because there's something here we cannot miss. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. Now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. 
The Gibeonites act shrewdly, and they lied, yes. But there's something else here. They feared the Lord. They feared Israel. They feared for their lives. They were terrified of death. And the other Amorite kings resolved to fight Israel. But the Gibeonites resolved to join Israel by any means possible. We've heard this before, right? Someone resolves to fight Israel, but someone resolves to join Israel. We see this with Rahab and Jericho, right? Jericho resolves that Israel shall not be its master, but Rahab resolves that God shall be her master. Now, I know this is a slightly different scenario, but both people group, Rahab and the Gibeonites, both lied. Rahab lied to the kingdom of Jericho and and led to their destruction. And the Gibeonites lied to Joshua and Israel. Both wanted to join Israel by any means possible. Now Rahab's confession also seems a little bit more sincere than that of Gibeon. But despite the level of sincerity, both make an affirmation of who God is. All right, what is the actual punishment given to Gibeon? Right? Verse 27, Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. The people of Gibeon are going to be servants. That's their punishment. But not just any servants. They're going to be servants in the house of the Lord. They're going to serve the altar of the Lord. And one day, when the kingdom is complete in Canaan, and it is the promised land, and Jerusalem is built up, they will serve in the temple. If ever there was a favorable punishment, this would be it. Again, it's interesting the Bible uses the word cursed. Because this curse doesn't seem like a curse. It seems more like a blessing. And while that may be the end of chapter 9, the real fireworks, the real explosion is going to be here in chapter 10, the first 15 verses from this morning. The other Amorite kings find out what happened, and boy, are they mad. I would be too. I've known betrayal. I've I've been backstabbed, not literally. Uh, I get together once a month with a group of men to play the game of risk, the board game of world domination. Our motto is, founded on Christian principles, and world domination. The Board of Risk is a game that only one person can win. And in order to get to victory, you have to make tricky choices. And whether the game lasts four hours, five hours, you know, into the wee hours of the night, only one person can win. You can make deals. You can make alliances. But in the end, only one person can win. And so the kings of Canaan feel stabbed in the back By the Gibeonites. The people who were allies with them have turned and joined the other side. So, what do the kings of Canaan do? Verses 3 and 4 Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hohem, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lakeshish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, "Come Come up to me and help me. Let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. The kings in Canaan are upset. They're done. All right, that's it. It's time to march. And so they do. And just like in a game of risk, when I've been backstabbed and throw everything I have at my new enemy, even if it means losing, these kings send their entire armies 
all to Gibeon. But why risk this? Why empty your cities, of out, your cities out of all the valiant men of valor and send them to Gibeon? Gibeon lay six miles from Jerusalem. Remember, at this time, Jerusalem is not in control of Israel. It lay six miles from Jerusalem, which is a Canaanite city, and, the Gideon, and, and Gibeon guarded the approach to get to Jerusalem. Where Jericho was the entrance to Canaan, Gibeon was a place of power in Canaan. And the kings of Canaan could not allow this to become Israelite territory. The, the four cities of Gibeon sat roughly 100 square miles. It's, it's at the very center, and all the other Canaanite kings have towns around it. This would be the perfect place to strike out from. Gibeon gets a message to Joshua, their new suzerians, their new leaders, and says, Help us. We need help. And how does Joshua respond? Verse 7. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Joshua does not hesitate. Joshua does remember to do one thing, though. He does not hesitate to go to help his new allies, but he does one thing first. And it's not said to us, but we can infer. Because in verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Yes, we're back at it. We're in right relationship with the Lord. Joshua consults the Lord, and then Joshua acts quickly. He resolves to get to his new allies to help. And Israel promised they would protect Gibeon. That's the whole thing. Gibeon gives everything to Israel, and in exchange, Israel will protect them. And he goes quickly. How do we know that Joshua goes quickly? Verse 9. Joshua came upon them, that is, the Canaanites, having marched up all night from Gilgal. The fighting men of Israel marched through the night to Gibeon. Now, this might be hard for us to understand in our day and age, but marching at night in the middle of a land where there is no light is very tough to do. And if you're traveling with a mighty army, you don't want to have lots of lights because you don't want enemies to see that you're marching. But yet... They move quickly, and they march all night long. And as soon as day breaks, they arrive at Gibeon. Now, when an army is sieging a town, if an army is going to besiege a town, they're going to go around it as much as they can. They're going to try and block the exits. They don't want anyone from the city getting out, especially messengers. Now, they're going to hopefully break down the walls as best they can. They're going to try and attack the gates, but also they're going to try and starve the people because they want to take the city. The problem is, is when you're sieging a city, you're facing the city that you're attacking. You're not looking behind you. You're focused on the battle ahead. Joshua, marching in the middle of the night, at daybreak, comes upon the forces of Canaan. Now, coming from behind the enemy is a great strategy, but a better strategy is having the Lord on your side. Verse 10. And the Lord threw them, that is the Canaanites, into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Mekedah. Not only does Joshua have the element of surprise, but the Lord throws the Canaanites into panic. They flee. They don't know what to do. We, we don't know their minds, but we know that they were fleeing. And as we talked about our very first Sunday in this series, 
morale can turn the tide of any battle. That's how 6,000 Scottish troops were able to defeat a British force much larger than theirs. They were motivated. Their enemies were demoralized. Imagine you're one of the Canaanite soldiers standing before Gibeon, and you, you wake up, you look out at the city you're besieging, and then you start to hear the shout of armed men running behind you. You don't know what to do. You panic. You flee. All of the enemies of the Lord flee from before him. Now, this isn't the only time this happens. You read through the Old Testament. Spend time reading through the Old Testament. Not only does the Lord always win the battle before it begins, but a lot of times the armies of Israel show up and their enemies are already dead. In the story of Gideon in Judges 6 through 8, Gideon and his men attacked the Midianite camp, and their weapons of choice were a trumpet and a torch. And they scared the Midianites, and God caused them to flee. And instead of Israel fighting the battle, the Midianites killed each other because they thought they were the enemy. In King Jehoshaphat's time, the Israelite army, very small compared to their enemies, goes out marching, singing, praise the Lord. His love never ends over and over and over again. And when they finally reach the battle ready for war, the three opposing city-states all get confused and attack each other. In King Hezekiah's time, the Assyrian army, this massive army of 185,000 troops encamps outside of Jerusalem. The people cry out to the Lord. Hezekiah cries out to the Lord. And the next morning, what do the Israelites find? 185,000 Assyrians dead. God wins the victory before the battle begins because victory belongs to the Lord. And we see that this victory clearly belongs to the Lord. The Lord uses the Gibeonite deception to the advantage of Israel. How does he do this? Well, for one, the Lord is wise because he's the Lord. He is wisdom. Israel would have had to go to each town and besiege it and take it and fight each town. Instead, the Lord gathers the major Amorite leaders all to one place. All of the pagans in this area of Canaan gather together, lambs led to the slaughter. And then we see that it isn't even the might of Israel. It's not how good Israel is that wins this battle. It's the Lord. Verse 11. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Large hailstones falling from heaven. When we think of hail, we think of, oh, we better get our cars into the garage so that they're not pelted with ice. These are large hailstones falling from the sky. What an amazing sight to see. It's clear who wins the victory here. It's it's not Israel, it's God. But there is one final piece of the puzzle, although it may be more puzzling than most, something in our text today that we need to talk about. Joshua calls out to the Lord and asks God to stop the sun and the moon from rising or setting. The sun stood still. Now, one common interpretation of this is so that the battle could continue. Because as soon as the the sun sets... The enemies would be able to flee and find refuge in the darkness. That's fine. 
That's a good interpretation. Another interpretation is that stopping the sun and the moon was important because they were gods to the Canaanite people. And God was showing himself victor over them like he did in Egypt. That's fine too. And those can work together. But the important thing to take away is Joshua, a man who didn't deserve God's help, prays to the Lord. And the Lord answers his prayer in an amazingly astounding way. And the Bible tells us that this has never happened again. The sun stood still. But some may ask, well, how can God stop the sun from moving? How can it, 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 we know that the sun did not actually stop, right? The planet itself stopped moving. Well, if God stopped the earth from spinning... Wouldn't that have disastrous ramifications for the rest of the world? Put it this way. If God cannot suspend the laws of nature that he wrote, is he God? We have a record of God picking up a man and placing him somewhere else in the world. If God cannot defy the laws of nature that he wrote, then he's not God. But if we believe that God can suspend the laws of nature that he wrote, and that he can pick up a man, in this case, Philip, with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts, right, and put him somewhere else in the world, then God is truly the God who created the universe. If God can rain sulfur down on Sodom and Gomorrah, if God can flood the whole earth with water, if God can stop water from flowing so his people can walk across on dry ground, then God is truly the God who has created everything in the world, the universe, because he is the creator. Now suffice it to say, there's no need to try and explain this miracle and how it happened. A holy God did a holy thing, something that we cannot do. Jesus Christ also did many miracles, many things that we cannot do. Some were explainable, some were not. Remember, the point of the book of Joshua is to point us to a need for a Savior. Why do we need a Savior? We've been been tackling this every week. Why do we need a Savior? Because our hearts are inherently sinful. And sinful hearts desire sinful things. And sinful things fulfill our sinful desires to do more sinful things. Sin is the problem. The punishment for our sin is death and eternal separation from God. And when you steal something from someone, uh, the punishment must fit the crime. If you steal a phone from from a phone store, you don't get life in prison. And likewise, if you murder someone, you don't get a slap on the wrist. The punishment must fit the crime. The punishment for sin matches the crime. We trespass against a holy God. We transgress His law. And apart from God and His intervention, there is no hope. That's right. If we have no hope, I mean, we have no hope if God does nothing. Because apart from God, we can do no good. Now, you may have heard it said that your salvation is like your drowning. And God in, in the, it throws you a life preserver. And that life preserver is Jesus. And you grab on tight and you hold and save yourself from drowning. I tell you the truth. Before God's intervention, you were dead in the ocean floor. The life gone from your lungs. 
And Jesus, the one through whom the world was created, dives into the water, sinking to the depths, and breathes life into your dead lungs, causing you to rise again. The Lord and King is the one who saves, not us. Jesus Christ is the one who does the work. He is the one who makes the first move. The one who spoke to Moses in the midst of a burning bush. The one who led the armies of heaven against the Jericho city walls. The one who entered the world as one of us. But not like us, for he had no sin. He became sin who knew no sin. And then he went to the cross, taking the weight of our sin and shame, bearing it so that we would no longer have to. But that's not the end of the story. Three days later, Jesus Christ rises from the dead, overcoming death and defeating it and opening a way to the Father. And he will come again once more with the armies of heaven, leading them against the remaining foes, bringing the new heavens and the new earth down with him. And at last, we will finally enter our Sabbath rest, true rest. Some of you may think, Mr. Ken, you talk a lot about the final wedding feast, the final rest, and the end times. Why is that? I'll tell you why. I'm tired. I'm not that old, but I've been fighting sin for what seems like a lifetime. I'm tired of a body that desires sin. I'm tired of waking up and fighting sin every day. But I do it because I I seek to honor and glorify the Lord who has saved me. And by the power of Christ... Together we will reach the finish line one day. Because that's our hope. We hope in something we cannot see. We wait for that reward patiently. And our reward is a promised life of perfection. Alongside our Creator. Enjoying Him forever. Where each day is better than the last. And if we don't have that, what are we doing? If we don't have a final rest, a hope and a rest that is complete. What, what's the point of all this? If there's no kingdom coming. There's no final perfection. Why are we doing this? Why are we here today? What's the point? The point is we do have hope. We have hope because God sent his son. And we do have hope in a final rest. And so we strive. So we fight on. Because in Christ alone our hope is found. And Joshua didn't know it. He didn't know it yet. But he was hoping in a future glory that he could not know. An undeserving Joshua goes forward by faith to lead an undeserving Israel, to protect an undeserving Gibeon, all to defeat a hell-deserving Canaanite army. It's quite interesting if you look up commentaries on Joshua 9. They'll be all over the place. Uh, One of my favorites compared Gibeon to the devil and how he seeks to assail us and deceive us and lead us away from our true calling. Another commentator comments on the folly of Israel and not inquiring of the Lord. Some say something completely different or land in the middle. But I think, I think that the Gibeonites were brilliant. I think they saw what was coming for them and decided it would be better to be slaves or servants or even put in prison, then lose their lives. 
They heard about the amazing things God did for his people and the terrible things God did to his enemies. They saw the wrath and they resolved to throw themselves in with Israel by whatever means possible. Now the commentator who torches the Gibeonites as evil and deceivers has this to say after a lot of beratement. There's no evidence in Scripture that the descendants of the Gibeonites created any problems for the Jews. It's likely that in their service in the tabernacle and later the temple were influenced and abandoned their idols and worshipped the God of Israel. What a beautiful thing. What is our best weapon against our enemies that seek to destroy us? It's the gospel. The Lord turned four cities full of pagan sinners into four cities that would soon be saints. Same thing in the book of Acts. God takes Saul, the persecutor of the church, and turns him into the protector of the church. It's the gospel of reversal. The gospel changes hearts. And the Gibeonites hear of the grace of God and the wrath of God and resolve to seek out mercy rather than annihilation. It sounds a little familiar though, doesn't it? We hear about the wrath of God towards sin. And we hear about the grace of God to those that repent. And we resolve to seek out mercy rather than annihilation. The story of the Gibeonites is a good one. And it shows us what can happen when someone hears about the Lord. For Rahab said, we have heard about the Lord. And the Gibeonites said, we have heard about the Lord. It is our mission to go into this world, one last time, forward by faith, to teach people about who God is. So that next Sunday, and for Sundays after it, and every Sunday until the Lord returns, new people will come, sinners will come and say, we have heard about the Lord. Tell us more. And the gospel that you have heard must be told, that others may hear it as well. And how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of the gospel to the lost. As you have heard, it's now time for others to hear as well. Let's pray. Father, you have done more for us than we could ever know. Every time we sin, every time we fall, every time our flesh abhors your law, we trust in the one who chose to call our wicked souls away from our reckless ways. Your love is overwhelming, never-ending, sovereign forever. We couldn't earn it, and we don't deserve it, but still through Christ you've ransomed us. There is no dead you can't raise up and no soul that you can't wake up because you are the sovereign God over all. Send us out in faith. Father, we are your ambassadors. By faith, we see your hand working through time, bringing us to where we are. And we know that you will lead us home. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.